when you start learning more about literature and interpreting it and really just viewing anything in the world from politics to religion, often there are different lenses or ways that you use to color and focus what it is that you're doing and thinking. In this unit, E.E. E. Cummings lays out a concept called being and unbeing that you'll be using as a way to examine the poems after you've comprehended them. In most of the recordings that I set out for you, I don't really focus on the theme as much as I'm focusing on um, helping you comprehend the poem and seeing how it could be read with appropriate phrasing and prosody that adds to your experience with the text. At this point, I want to really think about who E.E. E. Cummings is and how his views on poetry are going to become a lens that you will use, especially when you get to the fourth poet, um, Carolyn Forsha, that you'll be using to examine and really use it as a lens to interpret everything that is in this unit. We'll begin with the biographical excerpt for E.E. E. Cummings and then give an excerpt from non-lecture two, where I really want you to look at what does he mean by being and becoming and the poet's role in it. Edward Eslin Cummings was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1894. While a student at Harvard, Cummings became interested in modern poetry, which ignored traditional language conventions, syntax, and form. After graduating Harvard in 1916, Cummings joined the Norton Harges Ambulance Group in France during World War I, where he was imprisoned for three months on suspicion of espionage. His first autobiographical book, The Enormous Room, documented this experience. After the war, Cummings lived in Paris for several years before finally claiming New York as home between his frequent and continued travels. Cummings was a prolific writer. He is credited with 2,900 poems, along with several novels, plays, and essays. Cummings is most famous for his unique literary style. In particular, he was known for breaking his material up on the page to present it in a new, visually directed way. This in innovation was undoubtedly influenced by his work as a painter. One of the results of this method is that some of his poems had to be seen on the page to be understood. It was not enough to merely hear them read. Cummings also developed new grammatical usage. He'd use verbs as nouns and regularly invented new words. He also played with punctuation and capitalization. Cummings was a critic of social forces and institutions that encourage group behavior and an advocate of individual expressionism, expression. He was a champion of feeling and the imagination and rejected the, quote, overly organized, emotionally anesthetized and technologically quantified civilization. The excerpt from non-lecture two that anchors much of the work in this unit is part of the Charles Eliot Norton Lecture Series Cummings delivered at Harvard University between 1952 and 1955. Cummings' name is often seen published in lowercase, 
E. E. Cummings, a trend popularized by his publisher's decision in the 1960s to have his name appear as such on the cover of several books, an apparent homage to Cummings' idiosyncratic style. There is little evidence, however, that Cummings himself preferred the lowercase, and most contemporary publishers and scholars use the traditional capitalization conventions when printing his name. This is the excerpt from non-lecture two, E.E. Cummings. Remember, you are looking for how you're going to focus your thinking about being and unbeing. I think I inaccurately said becoming, but that might be a part of it too that you can bring out. For the benefit of those of you who can't imagine what the word home implies, or what a home could possibly have been like, I should explain that the idea of home is the idea of privacy. But again, what is privacy? You probably never heard of it. Even supposing that from time to time walls exist around you, those walls are no longer walls. They are merest pseudo-solidities, perpetually penetrated by the perfectly predatory collective organs of sight and sound. Any apparent somewhere which you may inhabit is always at the mercy of a ruthless and omnivorous everywhere. The notion of a house as one single definite particular and unique place to come into from the anywhere-ish and the everywhere-ish world outside, that notion must strike you as fantastic. You have been brought up to believe that a house or a universe or a you or any other object is only seemingly solid, really. And you are realists whom nobody and nothing can deceive. Each seeming solidity is a collection of large holes. And in the case of a house, the larger the holes, the better, since the principal function of a modern house is to admit whatever might otherwise remain outside. You haven't the least or feeblest conception of being here and now and alone and yourself. Why, you ask? Should anyone want to be here when, simply by pressing a button, anyone can be in 50 places at once? How could anyone want to be now when anyone can go winning all over creation at the twist of a knob? What could induce anyone to desire aloneness when billions of soy-distant dollars are mercifully squandered by good and great government, lest anyone anywhere should ever, for a single instant, be alone? As for being yourself, why on earth should you be yourself when instead of being yourself, you can be a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand thousand other people? The very thought of being oneself in an epic of interchangeable selves must appear supremely ridiculous. Fine and dandy. But so far as I'm concerned, poetry and every other art was and is and forever will be strictly and distinctly a question of individuality. If poetry were anything, like dropping an atom bomb, which anyone did, anyone could become a poet merely by doing the necessary anything, whatever that anything might or might not entail. But as it happens, poetry is being, not doing. If you wish to follow, even at a distance, the poet's calling, and here I always speak, as always, I speak from my own totally biased and internally entirely personal point of view. If you wish to follow, even at a distance, the poet's calling, 
You've got to come out of the measurable doing universe into the immeasurable house of being. I'm quite aware of that. Wherever our so-called civilization has slithered, there's every reward and no punishment for unbeing. But if poetry is your goal, you've got to forget all about punishments and all about rewards and all about self-styled obligations and duties and responsibilities, etc. ad infinitum, and remember one thing only, that it's you, nobody else, who determine your destiny and decide your fate. Nobody else can be alive for you, nor can you be alive for anybody else. Toms can be dicks and dicks can be Harry's, but none of them can ever be you. There's the artist's responsibility and the most awful responsibility on earth. If you can take it, take it and be. If you can't, cheer up and go about the other people's business and do or undo until you drop. <laughs>